Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May, 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week we demystify digital marketing and help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. We'll cover the right plan to get your amazing business growing online, along with tips and tricks from our upcoming playbook, as well as insights from successful people in the industry. If you're in a B2B business and would like to see your marketing work for you, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, with the right plan, anyone can grow their business online. Hello and welcome back to the B2B playbook podcast. This week, we're discussing part two. Uh, We couldn't quite get through all of part one last week, Kevin, and we were discussing the fifth part in our overall framework, which is be the best. And we just had so much uh, juicy stuff in there that we couldn't fit it all into one episode. You started getting hangry, and I think we had to quit for memory. I think you you got too upset, and we we just had to call it quits at some point. Uh, always blaming me, George, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> definitely some some truth to it. Um, yeah, definitely a very very juicy, very big part of um, our five stages. So. It was always going to carry over, and here we are, second part of Be the Best. Well, stoked to be back for it, um, and I'm very glad to see you healthy and well, Kev. You've had a, a bit of a week, haven't you? You've had both your ears blocked the whole week. We haven't been able to chat, really. We were considering taking up sign language, uh, but you're feeling all better now? Yes, yes, back on my feet. Uh, yeah, ear infections are no joke. Um, but thank God for the modern miracles of antibiotics. <laughs> you you remind me of, I can't decide if you're kind of like a Benjamin Button and you're actually, I don't know, 50 or 60 years old or your body is at least 60 years old or if you're kind of just regular aging person and you're Mr. Burns um, and you just your body is just waiting, waiting to be attacked. I think uh, I think you're right there. My my body definitely got the wrong memo uh, of what decade it is. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I have to keep reminding it from time to time. It's all right. Well, glad to have you back, safe and well, ready to discuss again part two 
of Be The Best, the fifth part in the five Bs. And uh, listeners, if you haven't heard part one, we strongly encourage you to go back and listen to part one from last week. Just as a quick recap, listeners, Be The Best is all about really what can we learn from specific tactics that can really help drive that extra growth in your business. On top of that, what tactics can really stimulate, I guess, the creative juices for your own business? Yeah, so the parts that we looked at last week were funnels, webinars, native advertising, co-ops or partnerships, lead magnets, and we ran through a few examples of those uh, lead magnets that we've seen work best. And this week we'll be looking at customer lifetime value, value of your email list, and education pieces. Really interesting one um, that George is really passionate about is neuromarketing. And then, yeah, just rounding off all those ideas with some tips about how to go uh, go forward from there and find even more great ones um, in your own time. Yeah, it, it seems jam-packed. And again, we don't want to overwhelm our listeners. Uh, we just want to take you through some of the really the top-level points and give you some key takeaways and examples from each of these so you can start to get your head around it. And um, yeah, it could even be some stuff that you can action right away. Yeah, it's really a mix of uh, ideas to stimulate your thought right now, but also hopefully a pattern develops of how we look at these things so that you can discover more yourself. Cool. So Kev, we're going to kick off with um, customer lifetime value. Now, customer lifetime value is something that I know you uh, are very, very passionate about um, and really enjoy talking about. Kev, what can you tell us about customer lifetime value? Yeah, I think maybe to to start off with a very simple definition, it's effectively analyzing how much value a customer is worth to you over the lifetime of the interaction with your business. So it's not just about the first interaction, it's not even about the second or the last. Um, it's about what's that total amount. And then using that to, to figure out, okay, how much can I spend on this customer? How much should I invest in, in acquiring each customer? And whether I should be increasing that value even. But either way, it's it's a good starting point to start to think about your customer in terms of what it means to your business. I guess it enables you to have a much deeper understanding of your business, doesn't it, Kevin? Like once you mm. understand what, what the full lifetime value of your customer is, because as you said, you can take that information and it just tells you so much about your product or your service, how it's resonating with people and where the opportunities are. So as you said, once you work out your customer lifetime value, i.e. how much that customer is going to pay you and your business and how much money they're going to give you before they end the relationship with your business, once you work out on average that amount, that enables you to completely rework how much you're willing to pay to get a new customer, right? So it can help you drive um, the growth of your business possibly faster because that number that you can afford actually might be a lot higher because you know that you can make the money up that you might have lost in that first interaction to get them into your business later on down the road. That's really the reason why we we sort of harp on about that aspect of how you use customer lifetime value is that's really where George and I start to understand this concept for how much it can impact your business. So for a bit of background, George and I, uh, on the agency side, we're working with uh, airlines uh, flights aggregator, and you know they started looking very heavily into this concept of customer lifetime value, and it was really quite a catalyst moving to that view to help them start 
a new stage in their growth. I mean, obviously, this was all pre-pandemic. So before sort of airline travel, particularly here in Australia, took a nosedive. Um, but it can have that same impact for any business. And we've started to apply that from then to every other business we look at in, in terms of how can that accelerate the growth? Because it, it just comes down to the fact that you might think on the first interaction, you really only make $10, $100 from a customer. But over the lifetime, once you you get them into your business, that they might actually be worth $1,000 to you. So you're, you're leaving money on the table, you're selling yourself short if you only spend $100 to acquire that customer to break even when you're actually making way more profit than that over the lifetime value. So you can actually spend more to acquire those audiences and those customers because over time you'll make that money back and it will actually make you grow faster which gives you a big competitive advantage of other people in your industry in the same space as you speed in some senses is is the key difference maker you you want to be the the first movers in your space a lot of the time yeah and kev i want our listeners to realize that this isn't just for the big guys right customer lifetime value isn't just for the big guys smaller businesses can use it and i actually think kev that it's almost more important now than ever for smaller business to understand this key metric. And the reason for that is, as you're well aware, there's all these data privacy changes going on at the moment, right, Kev, which is effectively making it harder and harder for you to use paid channels to acquire new users if you're a smaller business. Because essentially the data platforms or the advertising platforms are giving you less information about who these people are and who they can target, which means that the cost to acquire them is going up. The effect that that's having is the big guys don't care, right? They have a really strong understanding of their customer lifetime value. They can pay so much money to lose that to lose on that first uh, interaction with the customer, right? Because they know that they're going to make it up um, over that life cycle. And then big brands know that there's cross-selling opportunities as well. So they've got so many more avenues to to make up uh, for the loss of that first interaction. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say you're going toe-to-toe with them, um, but the idea is that if you start leveraging some of these ideas about looking at your customer lifetime value, value, then you can also play in that same ballpark and start moving up a bit quicker. But past that, as George said, the less data you get now with data privacy, uh, things that are becoming built in and baked into the digital advertising solutions out there, you need to be looking at your second and third funnel value adds from those same customers and thinking you know, very carefully about how much can I actually spend uh, to acquire a customer. Maybe a, a business that you feel like is just on the edge of uh, breaking even and being profitable, it, it could actually be profitable if you just work on the second and third funnel and build that into the equation as well. By uh, saying second and third funnel, uh, just to clarify what we mean is really by upselling them on new opportunities or new services that you have in addition to the one that you already sold them. Yeah, so we talked a bit about this before in previous episodes where you know, you're know you exchanging uh, valuable information for an email, things like that. Once they're in that funnel, you have a way, or, or even if you're acquiring them and, and there's a CPL attached to that, there's a cost attached to acquiring a customer in pay channels. Once they're in and you have their email address or some way of contacting them, then it's a lot cheaper to move them to the second funnel or the third funnel that we're just talking about. Uh, And that's why it becomes much more valuable to you. Each customer becomes more valuable to you. And actually, it's 
I guess it's a natural and good segue into the second point that we're going to talk about, which is the value of your email list and what you can do with that, this being the, the prime example. Yeah, just before we segue over to that, and I agree that's a terrific segue, I'm just going to hold us one more, one more second here, Kev, and just again say that remember to look at your customer lifetime value because it's going to tell you if there are opportunities to improve the lifetime value of your customer and look for opportunities to do that first and if you can do that first then that gives you more ability to acquire customers uh, in that first interaction yeah the idea being that you know maybe you've only sold them on one product in your range and there's a natural second product that they might need after purchasing the first one and if you're looking at your customer lifetime value and you realize oh most people are only spending the amount for the first product maybe they're not being made aware of that second product that will help out a lot. And it's just a simple email out to your existing customer base to say, hey, there's actually the second product that will make that first one even more productive, even better, uh, and an even better experience for the customer. <laughs> All right. Well, you managed to bring us back to the second point again anyway, Kev. So well done on the double segue. <laughs> um, the value of the email list and what you can do with it. Uh, you've already pretty much covered that off just then, Kev. It's so valuable to the business because it is effectively a free channel and there's a great chance that it's going to be seen and read by your customer. It is It is really the, the prime, uh, I guess, communication channel you should start to build from day one and try to make it your, your strongest channel. And it comes with that responsibility too. I mean, you can't spam people. Uh, you'll quickly lose the trust in your email list. So you do need to give good value in your communications and actually offer stuff that is relevant to your customers to that mailing list uh, so that they'll keep opening your emails because otherwise you'll lose the value in that email list. But if you do build that value into email list, it's really powerful. It can save businesses. I think, George, I'll hand it over to you to run through some of the examples um, that that you always tell me, uh, particularly from Russell Brunson. Um, but yeah, the idea is that once you keep that value in there and you build that value into your email list, it, it just becomes your biggest and most powerful channel. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, it's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site, tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast. That's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. Yeah, once you have a, a really solid list, you could almost put a dollar value on that list, can't you, Kev? And you can equate every email that you acquire to, uh, I don't know, it might be a few dollars in value. So if you have a thousand a thousand people on your email list and you send out like a new special offer um, or a new service that you're doing and your back's against the wall and you need to get something out, you can probably almost guarantee that out of those thousand people, you're probably going to get 
about $1,000 back at least, depending on how segmented and targeted that email database is. And I think it's probably worth going over again, Kev, how you need to, I guess, nurture that email database over time and make sure that they continue to trust you. So you don't just end up being another person who's in their inbox, spamming them, um, you know, three, four times a week. I don't know if you listen to Hamish and Andy, Kev, but they started a really good new segment called the Verbal Unsubscribe, which is uh, where they point out companies who are in their email inbox who have been there for years and no matter what they do it seems like they can't unsubscribe from these people one example that hamish gave i think it was like a cat bed a cat bed company that he looked at maybe five years ago over that five-year period i think they emailed him every three or four days like trying to sell him a cat bed trying to sell him a cat bed it just completely lost its value right like it completely lost its value because how many times you need to buy a new cat bed? Perhaps what they should have been doing is offering him free information, tips, advice on, I don't know, like what to, what to feed his cat, how to feed his cat to help it sleep better. Give him like actionable tips that give him a reason to keep in touch with that brand before he's ready to purchase something again. So that's something I think that our listeners really need to keep in mind is you shouldn't always be selling with your email, right? You've got to give, 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 and then eventually ask for something back. Yeah, that's a great point, George. And specifically, I had an example in mind, one that you told me a little while back in Russell Brunson's book. He mentioned that, you know, he was he was targeting an audience. I, I can't remember if it was B2B or B2C, but effectively his business was on a knife's edge and was really struggling and the only thing he had of value was his email list and you know he came up with one educational product a short ebook or booklet of sorts and he emailed that to his mailing list to see who would be interested and that's what saved his business um, at the end of the day was one simple email out to a very engaged email list for a business on the brink and that then allowed them him to continue and bring us all the great uh, sort of examples and material that has really helped many parts of our own uh, thinking in building this process in the in the five Bs. Yeah, it's it's a good example. I mean, because if you think about it, if your back's against the wall, it's pretty tough to start building up a profile in organic channels straight away. So that's something that takes time. You don't have the money for paid search. Email is like a fantastic avenue to reach out to people straight away who you have a prior relationship with and say, I've got this new great service, the new, this new great offering. Um, you know, we've had a relationship before. You do trust me. Um, who wants it? I guess while we're on the subject of Russell Brunson, it's time for me to make another segue. Him being a prolific producer of the material that we're going to talk about next, which is education material. So things like books, courses, seminars, uh, YouTube videos, which uh, really explain certain concepts and podcasts like like we're doing here. It's uh, kind of related to what you and I were talking about the other day, right? About how everyone, every business knows that it needs to be putting content out there, right? And then the next step to that is, well, what we teach people is, you know, you have to have content that actually is tailored to your audience and has to represent you as an expert online. And then this education piece is probably that next tier, right? That I think other businesses aren't going to get to for another five years consistently, which is how can we actually uh, make that next level content that not just informs, but educates. 
And that's really what that chapter is about, isn't it? It's about how can you build courses, books, seminars, or YouTube channels, or even a podcast like we're doing to educate uh, your dream customers. You know, you see a lot of people now creating content online, trying to engage their audience. And the ones that really come to the surface that really help is they're always adding something of value, particularly on the education front. There's a clear value add for their audience of, hey, here's something you can try. Here's something you can do to better your life, better your business, better whatever it is that you're pursuing that that content is talking to. We even took it a step further to talk about the idea of actually systemizing a lot of that, building things like software to support that customer because then it's really hard for a competitor to develop a similar product very quickly in most circumstances, particularly for the SME guys, um, for you to then really have a very reduced amount of competition because people will start using your free tools. But, you know, that all starts with that education piece, developing education pieces of content that your customers or users or audience will start to associate with you and um, they come to you to find that sort of information. Yeah, Kevin, I don't want our listeners to be intimidated if they look out there and their competitors are already out there making this educational content. If that is the case, uh, you can absolutely do that too. And if you don't want to go head to head with them, go back and revisit that 80-20 rule that we talked about. Who's that 20% of your customer base that's driving your business forward? Focus and define who that niche is and then create even more tailored content to them. Odds are, once you distill that 20%, it's probably not that same 20% that your competitor is focusing on as well. So you'll have a, a unique, distinct angle um, to target them with. Yep, big fish in a smaller pond. That's it. That's always that's always a better place to be, isn't it, Kev? Definitely. And I, I think um, something that you always talk about as well is it, it definitely doesn't need to be hard. I mean, when, when you look at this stuff, you might be like, oh, it's going to take me forever to put all the knowledge I have in my head down into an education piece. But there's a lot of people who can help you do that these days. If you don't have the time, uh, it doesn't need to cost a lot. Things like Fiverr Upwork, you can put out a brief to do that. A couple hundred bucks maybe is a good starting point and then, and then you're good to go uh, as a starting point for a lot of this stuff. There's definitely cheap ways to, to get going if you know, you're really short on time and you're trying to do a lot of this yourself. Yeah, and... Um if you do have more time, there's experts for everything, right, Kev? There's courses on how to create courses, right? <laughs> yep, plenty of them out there. Yeah, and um, something that we want to do, I guess, as part of the B2B playbook is distill, I guess, which of those are, are the best as well. Mm. Um, so you guys don't have to go through that pain. All right, George, I think that rounds out um, that point quite well. Uh, let's move on to neuromarketing. So uh, brain chemistry play as a... Uh, <laughs> sometimes you like to call it. Um, I might hand that over to you. Okay, Kev, so how are marketers playing with our brain chemistry? Well, every time you purchase, swipe or click, marketers have been studying neuroscience, so they're more accurately able to predict your behavior. And these days, the big brands know more about you than you know about yourself, which is kind of crazy. One of my favorite books that I've read in this space and our listeners can go to to um to find out and dive in more themselves before we dig into it later on is a book called blindsight and it's by a guy called matt johnson and prince gooman 
this is a prince who's not out there to to scam you. Uh, he's actually quite quite reputable. Um, I got quite a lot of crap from my friends actually, Kevin, when I connected with Prince Guman on LinkedIn. My friends thought that I've just been scammed by some guy. Well, George, if I had seen that, I probably would have been one of those friends. So I'm not surprised. Yeah, well, I I, I promise you that um, it's it's been very very well received. Has a lot of good actionable points that. Um, you can take away and apply to your marketing right now, even if you're just a small business. Kev, the first one that I want to dig into is price anchoring. So what's price anchoring? Uh, price anchoring is, I guess it's the the practice of establishing a price point that you as the customer can then refer to when making decisions. So every time you see a discount with, with something that was $100 and it's down to $75, $100 is the price anchor for that $75 uh, price tag, right? So that recommended retail price that you see on every piece of clothing, Kev, that's all an example of price anchoring. Well, that makes a lot of sense, George. I've always often wondered why uh, things like toasters are just too expensive in my head, but I still go out and buy one. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a very very effective and and proven technique. Retail stores use it all the time as well, right? If you're going and shopping for your next toaster, right, you might see three toasters next to each other. There might be a toaster that's $120, a toaster that's $150, and a toaster that is $300. Anchoring has meant that that toaster at the $100 price point, which is already you know reasonably expensive for a toaster, makes that next one, the next tier above, not look so expensive. So it's one way that you can then uh, really drive up the average cart value or the average purchase value of your products. Now, there's a lot of B2B companies who are applying this tactic all the time. Um, Anytime you subscribe to a piece of software, um, for you guys, it might be CRMs like HubSpot or Pipedrive or something, or it might even just be document management tools like Dropbox. Uh, Every time you go to their pricing page, they use price anchoring. And they use something else called the Goldilocks bias. Now, Kev, do you know what the Goldilocks bias is? I presume they're presenting uh, something that's just right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty spot on, Kev. So again, there's always pretty much three options, isn't there, on the pricing page. And the one that's in the middle always has the most popular sign on it. And it always seems to be just right. And the Goldilocks bias basically tells us that given three options, uh, we as humans, for some reason, always lean towards the middle one. It might be because we can rationalize that as the safest choice for us. Yeah, that's super interesting. I would definitely be a victim of that. Uh, You do tend to lean towards the middle one. The last one doesn't seem to be relevant to me. It's got too many features a lot of the time. The first one's usually, uh, you know, a, a bit too scarce in terms of the the things that I need from it. I guess I guess even when we look carefully at the pricing, that middle packaging, the, the price point probably isn't perfectly halfway in between the first and the last. And it does seem to be a little askew in terms of like how much value you get from it. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely know businesses leaning on that bias. Yeah, and it's probably not just something that you can use if you're a software business, right? Any business can use this when choosing how to structure Um, their own services or products that they're selling. Kev, the next one that I wanted to quickly run through uh, that the Prince, the great Prince talks about in his book is 
learning how to stand out and take space in people's memory. So they remember you as a brand or um, as someone who is associated with that brand. The way he says that you should do this using neuroscience is by zigging when others zag. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, zigging when other people zag is actually just about going against what people expect. So people tend to fall into a pattern and patterns generally create expectations of what is about to happen. And these patterns, we as humans use those as anchors again. And when we break this expectation um, of what's about to happen, then that results in surprise. And when something is a surprise, we tend to remember it. Kev, I don't know if anyone's ever thrown you a surprise birthday party, but if they had, I imagine that's probably a birthday of yours that has actually stuck out to you in your last how many years? No surprises here, George. I don't like him. <laughs> no, but I definitely do know what you mean. When, when I do get surprised by things, it, it does uh, stick in the memory a lot more and for a lot longer. And uh, yeah, that's a very good example of using that and transporting that into the business world. Kev, okay, a really cool example of zigging when other people zag. Seth Godin talks about it in his book, Purple Cow, which is all about um, how to create remarkable marketing. I think it was about 2006, Cadbury had like a, a food poisoning outbreak and a bunch of people who ate the chocolate bars got food poisoning. So to distract people from the fact that um, their Cadbury bars might give you food poisoning, they released an ad which featured a gorilla drumming to the intro of Coming Into The Air Tonight by Phil Collins. And like that is just such mm. a random but uh, incredibly mm. memorable um, advertisement to run at the time, right? Because like you just would not expect that. It was just completely bizarre. And um, apparently that did incredibly well for Cadbury. Everyone forgot about the fact that their chocolates gave you food poisoning. And yeah, great example of zigging when people zag. Yeah, nice one. Hopefully uh, most of our listeners aren't poisoning their customers. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's always uh, a gorilla in a suit to fall back on if you need. <laughs> I would uh, – I'd probably – be the one out of the two of us to be more in the gorilla suit, I'd say. Oh, definitely. I'll, I'll be getting a reasonable price on the suit and then quickly stuffing it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I thought like you would be wearing a suit too. You might be just in a, like a giraffe suit or a, a gazelle. No, no, I'll be behind the camera. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, I'll do it for you. I'll be the monkey in the suit for you. One distraction is enough. <laughs> Kevin, another neuromarketing part that we want to talk about just quickly is how to use nostalgia marketing. Uh, nostalgia marketing is just tapping into people's memory to conjure up emotions that are connected to that memory and then associating them with your brand. There's a lot of people who are playing on nostalgia at the moment, right? There's so many different reboots in the movies. It might be playing an old classic song when running an advertisement and that old classic song might have certain feelings tied to it at the time. You know, if it's like a 70s disco song and you're targeting like older people, then you're conjuring up images of when they're out partying, having a great time, booking down. And then you can associate that with your brand. You know, in a B2B context, it doesn't even have to be that related, right? If you're if you're prospecting some new customers, you send them a care package with something that everyone loved back in the day, like a piece of chocolate or something like that. <laughs> Sometimes you, you get that favorable association with your brand just by a simple act like that. 
So it definitely stuff that can be applied to B2B, small business space for sure. That is a way better example. Well done, Kev. <laughs> that is such a good example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great point. Kev, one last uh, point on neuromarketing that uh, I want to cover is the, the power of FOMO. Um, do you ever get FOMO, Kev? Um, not so much, but I was going to mention you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think you're one of the very few people that FOMO doesn't affect. For people who don't know what FOMO is, FOMO stands for fear of missing out. And it plays on the idea that we are um, social creatures by nature and we want to do what other people are doing and we don't want to miss out. It's absolutely something that I subscribe to. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a psychopath, and uh, I do give <laughs> into FOMO every now and then uh, for different things. But I, yeah, maybe my bar for it is just a little, a little higher by comparison. <laughs> Probably the the easiest way to see someone use FOMO is you go to e, any e-commerce store, right? You go to like Temple and Webster, and just notifications keep popping up. Uh, saying that someone has just bought this rug that you're looking at. Or when you go and book flights and they say, like, hurry up and book, there's only three rooms left. So you know that other people want it, they must want it because it's good, and you don't want to miss out. But there's other ways that you can apply that in the B2B context too, and it doesn't have to require you to have some uh, plug-in to say every time someone bought your product. But it can be simple as, like, a um, case study or testimonial, right, Kev? Like, that's an example of FOMO. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you're, you're missing out the great results that this simple product can give you or um, having having a course as, as a product or service and saying, hey, only 10 available every three months and we're almost full. Yeah, yeah, great example. Um, I think that's enough on the neuromarketing front, Kev. Yeah, I think uh, to, to round out what we've really been talking about for the last two episodes, it's just a, almost a call to action for you to start thinking outside the box about your business a little. Um, you don't have to always start by sitting in a chair and uh, with a pen and, pen and paper quietly thinking about what can actually uh, move the needle for your business in terms of these ideas or hacks. A lot of the time, the inspiration will hit and you'll have more than enough ideas by simply just opening your eyes and having a look around at what else can you transfer from other areas of your life um, that you're you're reading about, hearing about, which is really the whole purpose of this whole stage is having a look at what other businesses are doing in different industries and thinking about, hey, that idea is really good and is working well for them. Can I transport that over somehow to my business, my industry? my B2B corner of the world and think about, well, what's the best way for me to apply that um, for my business and see how that goes. Yeah, it's a great point and particularly about looking to other industries, right? If you're just looking um, in your own backyard, um, then it's hard to come up with new ideas. And if you're just looking at competitors, then you're only going to be maybe just as good as them. And the idea is we want to be better. Well, actually, we want to be the best. We want to be the best. And uh, it's we're all, always saying is it doesn't have to be hard. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, inspiration will hit when it hits. Uh, for the rest of the time, look to other industries. Look to other players, uh, maybe a little further removed than where most of your immediate competitors are looking. 
Okay, well, Kev, wow, we've we've done it. We've covered the framework. We've covered the five Bs. We did it. We've at least committed this far. It's a big moment. It is uh, it is marker that will now start to dive a bit deeper into some of these concepts and start to elaborate out the details of how you would actually do it and um, you know some of the the reasoning and backing behind some of these ideas. But um, it is really cool to to have gotten to this point and to share our overall framework. Yeah, I think it's uh, awesome how the five Bs really enable you um, as the business owner or even the the marketing manager person tasked with marketing to just be working on the business and not just in it all the time. So there's a system there for you to follow. Yeah, that's the role at the end of the day of the marketing function within a business and even business owners. It's not about working in the business all the time. You're you're trying to systemize that and remove yourself from that process, maybe not physically, but at least from the process of thinking in the business to thinking about how can I improve the business itself. And yeah, just remember to systemize what works in your business, automate that, outsource it or delegate it if you need to, but then looking to reinvest that time into building the brand for you personally and also the business and growing the business itself. Yeah, what I love about systems is that systems aren't just a way of creating a a never-ending to-do list, right? It's just a method of getting something done and you can do it in a sustainable and achievable way between your nine to five or whatever hours it is that you want to put in. You know, we're not the most eloquent people on this uh, subject. I think uh, two books really come to mind when we're talking about that whole process of shifting your mindset within a business. So if that's the inspiration you need, we highly recommend you check out The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber as well as The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Uh, so we'll link both those books um, along with other things we mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Awesome, awesome. Um, absolutely love The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. I think, it, I think it's probably mostly in the title, isn't it? I think the the parting note um, from us around the B2B playbook overview is that uh, it's really there to help you and particularly important for B2B uh, small business owners and people who work in these small businesses that we often provide a service alongside a tangible product and it's easy to lose ourselves in that work in servicing our clients, but then forget the business. So use the process to help you shift your focus, work on the business. Cool. So from next week, Kev, we're going to start to dive back into the stages, aren't we? Now that we've covered off in the framework and this will always be there for people to refer to, but we're going to dive back into the stages and each parts of those stages in real detail, uh, covering off our views on that particular part, how we approached it and share some really great templates to help people get started. Yeah, really excited to, to get even deeper into things. Um, but As always, you can find everything that we've discussed in the show notes and uh, we're really excited to chat to you again next week. Yeah, Kev, just a quick plug. Um, We've also been releasing articles that we've been writing on the first stage, the Be Ready stage, and some really cool templates there as well. Ones to build your dream customer avatar, ones to build your dream 100. Um, So go to the b2bplaybook.com and check those out. Uh, Easiest way to to follow us as well in in your day-to-day social browsings is to follow us on LinkedIn. Um, So that's both the page and you can join our B2B marketing club. We'll link those in the show notes as well, um, but we'll post regular updates about any content and templates that we share in those pages. 
Cool. Thanks, Kev, for your time. And thank you, listeners. Cheers. A quick note before you go, listeners. You can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook, the easier way to champion your business online.